We're about to read the Bible now, but before we do, please join with me in prayer. Father, Lord, thank you so much um, for this beautiful day. Thank you that we could come together um, now and hear from your word. And we just pray that you'll give us understanding um, and focus um, as we hear Rowan speak from your word. Amen. Today's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 38, um, and it starts at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan Kemp, I lead the staff team working here on the campus. 
That story that we just had read out for us from Genesis chapter 38, there is no escaping that is an uncomfortable and uneasy passage. Aside from the numerous deaths, the threatened burnings, it's all about sex in the wrong places. There's prostitution, there's sex with brothers-in-law, sex with fathers-in-law, there's preemptive withdrawal during sex. What do we make of this story? Why is it here in the Bible? To try to understand that and answer that question, we need to actually think about this story that we've just heard read for us in its context, in the context in which it's given to us in the book of Genesis. Uh, here in the EU public meeting and various chunks throughout the year, we've been looking at this book of Genesis. And today we come to the beginning of the 12th panel of the book of Genesis. Genesis is not actually originally divided up by chapters, but in 12 sections. We come to the beginning of the 12th section, the 12th panel, the descendants or the generations of Jacob. That is the people who, the next generation after Jacob. This panel starts in chapter 37, goes all the way through to the end of the book, chapter 50. And today we're just looking at the first two chapters in this panel, chapters 37 and 38 that we just had read for us. And then over the next two weeks, we'll look at the rest of this panel. So three last weeks of the EU public meetings on this last section of Genesis. But to understand what's going on even here, we need to just remember what's going on in the book of Genesis as a whole. So here's my super brief recap for you. Uh, one of the big things that happened earlier in the book of Genesis was that the one true living God, Yahweh, made a promise to a particular guy, Abram or Abraham. We know this is a really big moment in the book of Genesis because God makes this promise to him not once, not twice, not three times, but four times he reiterates this promise to Abraham. You and I, as the one reading the book, we're meant to go, oh, this is a big deal. That's why it's said four times. It's there in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. That promise made to Abraham had three parts mainly. That is that you, Abraham, will have many, many descendants, that you will inherit this particular land, the promised land of Canaan, and that through you, blessing will eventually come to all the nations of the world. Those were the three aspects to the promise. That promise was then reiterated to Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 26. And it was reiterated again to his grandson, Jacob, in Genesis chapter 28. Same aspects of the promise. You'll have many descendants, you'll inherit this land, and through you will come blessing to all the nations. So all the way through, as the book of Genesis, the question has always been, okay, God's made this promise, how will that promise play out in the next generation? And each time we've seen the promise reiterated from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. And as we enter the last panel, the descendants of Jacob, the question is, what's going to happen to the promise, that big promise? What's going to happen in Jacob's descendants? Now, if you know the story in Genesis, you'll know that each time in the next generation, there's been some controversy. From Abraham, he had Isaac, he's somebody also had Ishmael. There was tension there. Isaac had two sons, Jacob, yes, who received the promise, but also Esau, and there was tension there. So as we head into the last panel, you go, well, I wonder what sons Jacob will have and how that'll go. Well, Jacob has 12 sons. So you might expect this is going to potentially be complicated. And you'd be right. It's very complicated. In fact, even as we head into this final panel, the descendants of Jacob, we already know that some of his sons 
are not really good eggs. They're not really, they're bad apples. They're not, they're not really great candidates for receiving this promise. Let me just show this to you so you can see this. What will happen in the next generation? It's already not going well. For example, Jacob's oldest son, and normally back in the culture of the day, you're the oldest son, you're the one who sort of received the double portion of inheritance. You're the firstborn. You had special rights. Hand up if you're the firstborn son in your family. Yeah, well, you're born thousands of years too late, right? Nothing's coming to you. But Reuben, you would expect to receive sort of extra blessing. But if you look up Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, before we head into the last panel, you'll see there that Reuben goes in and sleeps with his father's concubine. He sleeps with his dad's concubine, Bilhah. This is a very bad thing. In fact, we know this from later in the book of Genesis, at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob's the dad, Jacob actually says to Reuben, you will no longer excel for you defiled your father's bed. And 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, actually tells us that when Reuben defiled his father's bed, his rights as firstborn were given to another. So Reuben has already excluded himself. Okay, so it's not the firstborn, it must pass down to the next one. Who are the next? The next two sons are Simeon and Levi. But before we even got to the final panel, we already know they're not so great either. So this time it's in Genesis chapter 34, verses 20, a terrible story in Genesis 34 where Dinah who's a daughter of Jacob, she's raped, and Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves to respond to an injustice, a terrible injustice, the rape of their sister, with, with even more injustice. Their vengeance is so overwhelming, so terrible is the vengeance that they wreak on the people of Shechem that Jacob, their dad, says to them at the end of the whole incident of that chapter, he says, you have caused great trouble for me, actually, by the extent of your vengeance, the way you've carried it out. And if you go again forward to the end of Jacob's life in Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 to 7, Jacob, the dad, says, cursed be their anger, Simeon and Levi's anger, I will scatter them in Jacob and Israel. So these two, by the extent of their violent vengeance, they have also, seems, excluded themselves. So you would think, okay, so that's the first three sons. Who's number four? Number four is Judah. So as we, head, as readers, head into the, the final panel, we're going, it must be Judah. Judah's going to be the hero of the story, right? Judah is the one who's going to move forward as the oldest who's not excluded himself. But then when we turn to chapter 37, the beginning of this panel, it doesn't play out like that. Genesis 37, let's have a look. I've called this Ditch the Delusional Dreamer. Ditch the Delusional Dreamer, Genesis 37. We meet at the beginning of chapter 37, not, not uh, Judah, but son number 11. I mean, who's this guy? Son number 11, Joseph. He's a nobody, right? He's, we read here, he's 17 years old. Just a young punk. Sorry if you're 17. We meet Jacob, the 11th son. What do we know about Jacob? What, sorry, Joseph, the 11th son. What do we know about Joseph here? Verse 2, we know that he's a snitch. He's a tattletale. He tells on his brothers to, the, to his dad, to their dad. 
Now, if you've got siblings, you know that telling on your siblings, being a si that's not a way to be popular with your siblings, right? That is, that is death. And you know what? Literally, it turns out that way for Joseph, right? They do try to kill him. We'll get to that in a moment. He's a tattletale. He's a snitch. Verse 3, second thing we know, he's daddy's favourite. Jacob gives him a special coat. We're not told, actually, that it's multicoloured. It's not some technicolour dream coat. And probably Jacob didn't do it with a song and a dance while he was doing it, right? But it's some sort of ornamental, fancy coat that he gives his favoured son, son number 11. Why was Joseph his favourite son? Well, because Joseph was the first son born to Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife and Rachel had been barren for very, very many years. And so by the time Joseph was finally born, that was, he had a special place, I guess, in both Rachel and Jacob's heart. And so he was his favourite son, but as a result, verse 4, we're told that his brothers hated him. He's a snitch and he's the favoured one. Verse, to make things worse, verse 5 to 11, he also has de delusional dreams of grandeur. Have a look in your Bible there, verse 30, uh, chapter 37, verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. You ever done this? Hey, listen to this dream. It's a really cool dream. Yeah, here he goes. Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to mine. Your son number 11, like you're 17. Like, really? That's how you think things are going to go? You think that's a cool dream? That's not, it's not the only time he has this dream. He has it a second time. You can read there. He has it a second time. This time it's the sun, the moon and the 11 stars, that is the 11 brothers, who are bowing down to him. He tells his dad that one and even his dad, Jacob, says, well, that's, he's a bit sceptical about it. And his brothers, verse 11, they're just jealous. Now note here, there's no indication in, in the text that this dream was, you know, a word of the Lord. No indication that this was some sort of special prophecy about him. He's just, just said, hey, I've had this really cool dream. What do you think of that? Isn't that great? You can understand why maybe it didn't go down so well with the brothers. So this is Joseph, son number 11. The one who thinks he'll be top of the pot. We already know Reuben, Simeon, Levi, they're gone. And now we meet son number 11 who thinks he's going to be top. Well, the brothers aren't going to stand for that. The rest of chapter 37 is about what the brothers do. The situation arises where the brothers are a long way from home looking after dad's flocks and they have an opportunity to rid themselves of this pesky, delusional kid brother. Verse 14, you read there, Joseph is set off to check on his brothers by dad, by Jacob. Now, that's probably not a popular move. We already know he's a snitch. Now, his dad sent along number 11 again to check on us. That's probably not a great popular move when he reaches them they hatch a plan look at verses 19 to 20 here comes that dreamer they said to each other come now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns like a well but there was a dry season so there's nothing in the well but throw him kill him throw the body into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him then we'll see what becomes of his dreams namely nothing we know who's going to win this story. So 
So they hatched this plan. Let's kill him and be rid of him. Reuben, who, remember, is the oldest in verses 21 to 22, he doesn't like the plan. He persuades him, look, let's not kill him first. Let's just chuck him in the cistern and then we'll just walk away. Right? Effectively killing him, but let's just not actually take his life. But Reuben's secret plan, as you read here, Reuben's secret plan is actually to go back and rescue Jacob. Oh, Joseph, sorry. Verses 23 to 24, they carry out the plan. They grab Joseph, they take his special coat, they throw him in the well. Verses 26 to 28, though, they change their plan. Judah, son number four, has an idea. Let's not be responsible even for just leaving him to die, because technically we'd still be responsible for his death. Let's, Let's, here's a better idea. See these passing traders, these Ishmaelites heading along to Egypt? Why don't we sell our brother as a slave to them? We make some moolah and we get rid of him and go, well, we don't know what happened to him. Not up to us. Our hands are clean. So that's what they do. They sell their brother as a slave to get rid of the delusional dreamer. But they have to tell their dad, Jacob, something. So they deceive him. Now, if you've been here in the year, you probably know, you know what Jacob means, right? It means he deceives. Poor old Jacob is still being deceived, this time by his own kids. They deceive him. They dip the coat, the special ornamental coat, in goat's blood. They cook up a story. Hey, Dad, we found this. Oh, I mean, it, it looks a bit like Joseph. I mean, is it Joseph's coat? We don't really know. You better look at it, Dad. That's what they say. And look at verse 33. Jacob recognised it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And poor old Jacob is inconsolable. So Joseph has now been successfully cut out of the picture. First three sons um, sort of cut themselves out of the picture. Joseph arrives and says, I've had this dream, I'm going to be top of the pile. The older brothers manage to get him out of the picture. So we're still left going, okay, right, well, must be back to Judah, right? That's where we're thinking this story is going, to who's going to be preeminent. However, there is a funny little note at the end of chapter 37. We're just told there, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard sort of interesting how come we know that i mean they just sold him on right they just gave him to the ishmaelites who were working probably for the midianites and said you oh, we're, we're. but somehow somehow we know what happened to him i wonder wonder why we know that what happened there <laughs> we don't know yet we don't know yet just go but it's a bit curious anyway okay i'm sure that'll be resolved in due time so then we head into chapter 38 And we get the focus on Judah, which is what we're expecting. However, what we meet in chapter 38 is the unrighteousness of Judah. So you've got to get your head around this part of the story. Judah, son number four. He himself has three sons. Ur, Onan, Shalah. Ur marries Tamar. But Ur, we read did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, verse 7 of chapter 38, and so the Lord puts him to death. He dies. Suddenly, Tamar is now a widow, and there's a problem. Tamar has not yet had any sons. They have not had any sons. That's a big problem back in that time. 
because sons were what perpetuated your family line and sons received the inheritance of the land. Now, God had promised the land of Canaan and ultimately that inheritance comes through the son. So if you die without sons, or sorry, your spouse dies and you haven't had any sons, that's a problem. That's the end of that line of that inheritance. So that's a practical problem. But it's a particular, because without sons, who's going to look after you when you get old? It's also a problem in the larger story of Genesis, right? Because God's plan was, you would promise was, you'd have many descendants. And here we see a line coming to an end. So there's a bit of a meta problem there as well for the greater story of Genesis. But what, so what does Judah do? Judah follows the custom of the day. It seems strange to us, but was regarded as normal and indeed right in the culture of the day, the right thing to do. Judah tells his second son, Onan, to help Tamar have a son, have a child. According to verse 8, this is his duty to her as a brother-in-law, to produce offspring for your brother. That is, he is to take her on as a wife, it's a bit unclear here in the text, but at least sleep with her, conceive a son eventually, and that son will be regarded not as his son, that son will be regarded as the son of his dead brother. Any subsequent children will be regarded as his sons, but the first son to perpetuate the dead brother's line will be regarded as hers. This was the culture of the day. But Onan is not happy about this. He doesn't want any of his offspring to regard it for the rest of their life as the offspring of his dead brother Ur. So he won't cooperate. Notice he doesn't just say, no way, I'm not having any part of this. No, he seems quite happy to go in and have sex with Tamar. The text says there, verse 9, whenever he lay with Tamar, implying this didn't happen, it wasn't just once, right? Whenever he went in and lay with Tamar, he would, he would refuse to help her conceive. He goes in and takes what he can get, it seems, but then won't help her conceive. Instead, he deliberately ensures that he ejaculates when he's not inside her. And then we're told in verse 10 that this was wicked in the Lord's sight, what Onan did. And so he too is put to death. Now it's worth just clarifying at this point, what is the wicked thing that Onan has done here? I don't think, I don't believe that it's actually the spilling of his semen on the ground, as the text sort of puts it, which is the way some people have taken it in the past, that the wicked thing was that he ejaculated whilst not having sex. Because some people then said, if that's the case, well then say masturbation is clearly wrong because there's ejaculation without sex and the problem with that I think is that that logic proves too much because that logic would also say to you therefore having a wet dream where you ejaculate while you're asleep that is also wicked in the eyes of the Lord but ejaculate like a wet dream that's not something you have any control over right how are you going to be liable to the Lord for something you actually have no conscious control over whatsoever that logic doesn't really flow. So I think that to say that this is actually about masturbation or that this text really is relevant in any way to masturbation is actually a misuse of the text. If you do want a biblical text that might say something about masturbation, you could go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, where the Lord Jesus talks about sins of the eye, sins of the heart, and sins of the hand 
in the context of talking about lust. Think about how those things, lust in the heart, I, what you're looking at, and what you're doing with your right, think about how those things all combine together. So it's possible that the Lord Jesus is thinking about what's uh, masturbation, but the issue is not the masturbation, interestingly, in Matthew 5. The issue is the lust. The problem it doesn't seem to be with the physical act of ejaculation or even masturbation. The problem is what's going on in your heart as you're looking or as you're using your hand. That's what it seems to be. But you might like to think about that more and come back to me later on Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back to the text here in Genesis 38. The text doesn't say that it's the spilling of semen in itself that was wicked. Rather, it's the spilling of semen in this particular context where Onan is meant to be fulfilling his duty and helping Tamar to conceive. That's what made this wrong. And the fact that he did it repeatedly was what was wicked in the Lord's sight. So Ur's gone. Onan's gone. What should Judah do? Judah knows that his responsibility is to give his third son, Shalah, to Tamar that she might conceive a son. But now Judah shows that he is unwilling to do what is right. So verse 11, Judah tells Tamar, look, go back to your family and wait for Shalah to grow up, which sounds fair enough, right? But not when you see here Judah's thought processes. And we read there, for he thought he may die too like his brothers. So Judah thought Tamar was a problem. Sleep with Tamar, you're going to die. So let's just not do that. Tamar, go back and wait for him to grow up a bit. Okay. So, so Tamar heads off. We're then told in the text that a long time passes there in verse 12. In fact, Judah's own wife dies. He's now a widower himself. He's not married to anyone. And then he goes on a trip to visit those shearing his sheep. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shalah had now grown up, she'd not been given to him as his wife. What's Tamar's plan here? I mean, so she's disguised herself, she's put a veil on, sitting by the road where, where Judah's got... What, what, what's her plan here? What could she possibly be thinking? Well, we see what happens. Judah sees her. He thinks that she's some sort of pagan temple prostitute. He propositions her for sex. They bargain the price, a goat from Judah's flock. But he doesn't have a goat with him, so she says you need to leave some sort of security, some sort of deposit. So he leaves his seal, like the stamp that this is me, the cord that was probably attached to that seal, and his personal staff. He leaves that as security. They sleep together. Judah then tries to send the goat as promised. But Tamar has taken off. She's returned back to her family. They can't find this person that Judah slept with. Tamar keeps the items she was given for security. Three months pass. She discovers she's pregnant. Others discover she's pregnant. This is shameful. She's not married to anyone. Who she slept with? Judah himself when he hears that she's pregnant, says, 
yes, she should die for what she's done if she's been sexually immoral in that way. Then Tamar plays what she probably had hoped would be her get-out-of-jail card. Have a look at verses 25 to 26. As she was being brought out, that is, as she's being brought out to be killed, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. Tamar has secured from Judah the offspring that was her right. But look at Judah's response. Judah recognised the staff, the cord, the seal, and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalah. We struggle with that particular pronouncement from Judah, I think. How is it that Tamar has acted righteously? I think what Judah is saying is this. He's saying this situation is not what it appears to us. We think she has committed some sort of sexual immorality. We thought maybe she was guilty of prostitution. But actually, that's not the case. There are significant mitigating circumstances. Namely, I, Judah have failed to ensure that my son fulfil his duty to Tamar to seek to provide her with a male offspring. The real fault in this whole sorry tale lies with me, Judah. Judah gets that. Even though, yes, Tamar used deception, she did still behave more in the right, more righteously than Judah. Is her action perfectly clean? No. Is it pure righteousness lived out? No. But she has behaved more righteously than Judah. And notice that the account doesn't stop there. That's where we stop the Bible reading just for time, really. But listen to how the whole chapter ends. Verse 27. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them... You've got to imagine this. Well, sort of you don't want to, but imagine it. One of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first because they're concerned about the firstborn, right? But when he drew back his hand, ew, his brother came out. Woof! And the midwife said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez, which means he breaks out. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was given the name Zerah, which seems to mean scarlet. What's this about, this ending? Think about this for a moment. What you have in this strange little ending is, again, the younger breaking out, taking preeminence over the older, don't you? What is the significance of that happening here, right at the end of Judah's story? We've seen the unrighteousness of Judah. You remember? Remember, though, all those years ago, there was an 11th 
brother, wasn't there? I mean, remember he had those crazy dreams? Those crazy dreams that he would be the preeminent one? I mean, we sold him off as a slave to Egypt. Who knows what happened to him? It was, it was years and years and years ago. But as a reader, here yet again under the sovereignty of God, the younger is breaking out in preeminence over the older. I mean, maybe there was something in those dreams. Maybe, maybe... You'll just have to come back next week to find out. Well, what do we make of this story? Final few minutes. How do we make sense of this story? I put here up on the screen how I think to understand, how I try to understand this particular uncomfortable and uneasy story of shame and righteousness. I think what we see here with Tamar and Judah is we see a seemingly shame-filled but actually righteous act that secures God's salvation plans to bring blessing to all, tying it back into the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Let me just play this out for you a little bit. Think about what we've read about Tamar and Judah. There is, with Tamar, a seemingly shame-filled act. They think she's guilty of prostitution. But it's interesting, the story itself makes very clear she never received that goat. She never received any payment for sex. This is clearly not prostitution. It seemed, maybe, to be shame-filled. But actually, it was righteous. She was more righteous than Judah. Now, this is a bit tricky, right? We think, oh, how is sleeping with your father-in-law possibly in any way a righteous act? Now, strap yourselves in a little bit here, right? I'm going to throw a lot of quick stuff at you to try to get you up to speed here. Here we go. It's interesting as you read through the later Old Testament and particularly as you get to the time of Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the later law that the Lord gives through Moses is relevant to this story. I mean, it comes later chronologically, but it helps us, I guess, frame our moral vision for understanding what's happened with Judah and Tamar. It's very clear in the later Old Testament laws, particularly in Leviticus 18 Leviticus 20, that sex and marriage with close relatives is prohibited. It's off limits. It's very clear in Leviticus 18 verses 15 and 16 You're not to have sex with your daughter-in-law. But also, it says, in the very next verse, you're not to have sex with your brother-in-law's wife. So your brother's wife. Does that make sense? So actually, Leviticus 18 says sex with your daughter-in-law is wrong, but it also says sex with your sister-in-law is wrong. And yet we saw both happen back here in Genesis chapter 38. So how does that work? Well, where you need to then go is Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25 gives an exception to those other laws. It's an exception given in the precise situation that we meet in Genesis 38. The exception of what happens if you have a couple and then say he dies and she, the widow, is left with no son in particular. Then, Deuteronomy 25 says, then a brother of the dead man should marry this widow and the first son will be known as 
the son of the dead man to con- in order to continue the line. So here is a clear retrieval situation. It's a retrieval ethic. That is, there is a particular good that we wanted to try to achieve, that the line can continue and the inheritance be given, and that is now not possible. So how can we retrieve this situation? We retrieve it by saying this particular act should happen, even though normally this act we would not countenance. It's a retrieval situation to provide for the ongoing inheritance. Now, for us these days, as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that our inheritance does not come a physical plot of land. And it doesn't come through bloodlines. It comes by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our inheritance is kept for us in the new creation, in heaven. So we know that we don't need this sort of retrieval situation in order to secure God's promised inheritance at all. But in her pre-law situation, where the law had not even been given, what Tamar did, seems to me, is not prohibited. And you can see, therefore, how it could be considered righteous. What do you do if the sons won't cooperate? Then Tamar said, well, I'm going to go to the father-in-law. Now, it's in the later law of Moses, if the sons don't cooperate, going to the father-in-law is not held out as an option. When God gives his greater revelation and explains how he wants things to work, he does not give that as a particular way forward. But Tamar was not blessed with that revelation, let alone the revelation you and I have in the Lord Jesus, that our inheritance is not of this world. So that might help you sort of of think about a bit about that. But notice, here's this seemingly shame-filled act. Actually, though, it's righteous, and it secures God's salvation plans to bring blessing to all. How so? Well, she has Perez. Do you know who was Perez's great, 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 great grandson? Seven greats. King David. From Perez, from Perez came King David, king of all of Israel. God uh, moves his salvation plans forward through this seemingly shameful but actually righteous act. And you know who David's descendant was? The Lord Jesus. Jesus comes from Tamar's act of righteousness. And if you're going, oh, surely not then you are more ashamed of Jesus' line, Jesus' lineage, than the New Testament is. The New Testament writers are not ashamed of this because they know Tamar has acted righteously. If you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you look at the genealogy of Jesus, this is how it goes. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. No shame. Through this act of righteousness comes God's plans to bring salvation through Jesus to all people. But here's another thought on this too. I actually think as you look and reflect on this particular act that you see 
in sort of shadow form, a, a, a faint echo, if you like, of actually how Jesus brought salvation to all people. Because isn't it true that Jesus too, through a seemingly shame-filled but actually righteous act, secured our salvation? Wasn't it through his death on the cross, which was foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews? Wasn't that a seemingly shame-filled act, but actually was fully righteous? Him being obedient to his loving Heavenly Father. Him dying for the sins of the world as the sinless one. See, all the way through the Judah story, all the way through the Genesis story, what have we seen? We've seen that sin is reigning, ruling, and death is there because of sin, all the way through. And here we've seen in Judah, in his unrighteousness. But the truth is, we all need the seemingly shame-filled but actually righteous act of one who is more righteous than us. We need Jesus, the righteous one, his death, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So Peter the Apostle writes in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that's the great news of the Christian gospel, right? When you come to Jesus in faith and repentance, that you too are cleansed from all of your unrighteousness through Jesus, descended from David, descended from Perez, from Judah and Tamar. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for his astounding plan of salvation. Amen. Eh?